Hi there, you're listening to the Sydney Ideas Podcast. If 2020 has taught us anything, it's the need to pivot. We've got a global pandemic that's still going with no end in sight. What does this mean now for the next generation of workers? What will be the critical skills and attributes that employers will be looking for? Today, you'll hear perspectives from industry leaders working at some of Australia's top tech and management firms. Alison Cairns is partner at EY in the technology advisory practice, specialising in cloud-enabled digital transformation. Angela Murphy is Chief Executive, Distribution, Product and Marketing at Challenger, which is an ASX-listed investment management firm managing $85 billion in assets. Andrew Walsh is CEO of Iris, a global software company and technology partner to some of the world's most iconic financial services businesses. Professor Anna-Marie Jagos, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney, hosts this conversation. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this uh, Sydney Ideas panel discussion on the role of education and the future of work. As many of you know, Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's flagship public talks program and engagement platform, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you all here this afternoon. I'm Professor Anna-Marie Jagos, the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. So I think it won't seem to strike anyone as a original thought to say that uh, COVID-19 has really upended um, life for very many of us in 2020. It certainly introduced a lot of uncertainty, including very basic things, how we engage with other people, um, how we assess risk or opportunity. And all of these things challenge, I think, our established ways of working together. And so that uncertainty, although we may be hoping it's not a permanent feature of our lives, might nevertheless be a useful framework for thinking now about how we prepare our current workforce and the next generation of graduates for an unknown future in terms of both education and employment. And we're getting some pretty mixed messages on this front. High profile employers are flagging as desirable skills that the kinds of qualities that arts and social science graduates have, like communication, critical thinking, leadership, empathy, cultural awareness, creativity, these skills are seen as highly desirable. Meanwhile, our government is currently advancing controversial draft legislation that disincentivizes students from enrolling in arts and social sciences, apparently on the grounds that these disciplines are not associated with employability. And to further complicate the issue, full undergraduate or postgraduate degrees are no longer the only form of higher education, and higher or advanced education is no longer the sole province of universities. Last month, for example, Google announced its own training programs designed to provide foundational skills in high demand areas like project management, or data analysis or user experience design and have them authenticated within six months with a Google career certificate. So the world of education and the world of employment is really changing and changing fast. This is not a 2020 situation, but something that's been building for a number of years. And I thought it would be good to kick off our panel discussion by asking each of the panelists, Alison, then Andrew, then Angela, to reflect on their own studies and subsequent careers. Alison. Thank you, Anna-Marie. 
Um, I'm um, slightly amused that uh, the, you know, the, the latest thing is now um, micro-credentials and uh, you know, portfolio careers and constantly upskilling. Um, I'm a technologist and I've been a technologist for 30 years um, and that has meant that we have to constantly upskill. You know, um, what was, you know, COBOL all those years ago and then we've had to move to cloud, uh, we've had to understand open APIs and now we are all digital natives. The magic smoke disappeared from technology quite some time ago and we've had to constantly reinvent ourselves. So um, the, the reason I'm passionate about education is EY's purpose is building a better working world. And it doesn't get any better than having education underneath it. So my own personal journey, I grew up in um, an environment that was highly protected, um, in a very comfortable environment. And it was, uh, I wasn't going to need an education because my parents were very, very sure that um, I was going to marry well. Um, so really, education wasn't really required. Um, however, I had um, started uni, um, and then I decided that perhaps the gentleman that my um, family thought would be a good match for me really wasn't a good match, and uh, that made everyone rather cross. Uh, so I had to remove myself um, out to the UK. So uh, when I went there, I almost had to reinvent myself, which meant going back and studying again, leaving my first degree and actually studying, and that's where I got into technology. Uh, then the recession happened um, and my visa for the UK had run out as well. Uh, so I was able to go back to New Zealand, um, same recession. Um, but I then thought, you know, the, the problem was still there that my, my family was still quite cross with me three years later. So I came to Australia and that meant that I had to reskill again. And then going into working in technology, every six months you have to reskill. 60% of what the client is looking for, you have the knowledge in, but you actually constantly have to reskill. And it's not just in technology. You have to have those communication skills. So, you know, I've done some work through Harvard, uh, through Hurt, um, through um, uh, universities in Singapore, right throughout my career to make sure I have the right skills at the right time. There is nothing more terrifying than sitting in front of a client realizing that you have 60% of what they're looking for. So I actually find, I think it's brilliant that we're all into um, our portfolio careers and also micro-credentials. This is where it's at. And I'm really hoping the university sector, COVID, has brought this forward and means that it has to accelerate and do something about it. Thanks, Alison. Andrew. Thanks, Anne-Marie. I, I f f firstly simply echo the idea of ongoing skilling, whether that is, that is formal education or simply adapting to the world that's around us, that, that is a, a genuine phenomenon for anyone thinking about the future of work. Um, I don't think it's new, by the way, but it's definitely, definitely happening faster. Um, my, my story is, is, is one as a school leaver where, where I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I had, had a notion that I should do something um, important and had this idea that I was going to do or wanted to do veterinary science at the University of Sydney and I just missed out on that and so I did an arts degree and within that arts degree I chose all the subjects I liked uh, in, including, including pure maths 
and ended up completing, completing honours in maths, still with no idea of what I wanted to do. Uh, but I was able to combine subjects like chemistry and French, and I studied extracurricular at the, univers- at the conservatorium uh, in, in music. Uh, no, no, still no real idea. I uh, thought about working in an orchestra, thought about doing electrical engineering. I ended up doing actuarial science uh, by correspondence with a fellowship in London uh, and, and secured a role in working as a consulting actuary for, for many years before starting up a software business and, and now I'm the CEO of a listed software business in Australia with, with operations internationally. The, the skills skills that come about by broad-based education I'm, I'm a huge fan of and they are the kinds of skills that we look for in software engineers that being able to being able to build software is one thing but to be able to firstly understand what requirements are deal with a client and engage in, engage with others are just as important as the technical technical skills I I have recently been promoting the idea of apprenticeships. Uh, you mentioned the Google Google training program. Uh, it is now common for, for software businesses to be re- removing the requirement for tertiary education as a, as a, as a prerequisite for software engineering and, and other data-related careers. Uh, the, the emphasis on that is that the, the technical skills alone are not, not the panacea. Uh, it's actually a collective of who the human is, how they can adapt, how they communicate. Uh, in, increasingly, you can, you can learn the skills. Uh, and so that, that isn't the only, only pathway. Uh, so, yeah, again, excited to be here and t- talk about what the, what the future looks like. Great. Thanks, Andrew. And Angela. Thank you, Anna-Marie. Well, I'm a bit relieved when I heard um, Alison's rather focused career. I was thinking, how do I tell my story? But, Andrew, I think um, I maybe have met my match in terms of um, not really knowing what to do and the breadth of your background. So uh, I came from um, my my dad was a builder and my mum was home most of the time and then a preschool assistant. And I feel as though when I finished school, um, I almost didn't know what work there was. I didn't have a lot of insight into either the public sector or the corporate um, world, and we had an optional um, work experience that you could do in the holidays across year 11 and 12, and I did work experience, you know, desperately trying to find out what it was it might be that I would do. I, was, um, I did a, a week as a, a pilot at the Naval Air Base at Nowra. I was the political journalist with the Australian at Parliament House. I did interior design with a mid-sized design firm. did a week as a researcher at the Australian Institute of Aboriginal Studies. I did public relations with this small public relations consultancy. I had, I, I, you know, and part of that was actually a love for a lot of things. Um, and interestingly, I also studied for my associate diploma on piano and kind of put myself through uni by, by teaching, um, you know, kind of piano students. So um, I really didn't have much of an idea at all. And in fact, it's, it's not on my profile, but my, my first thing was a year of interior design at the University of Technology in Sydney. And I think I partly did that because it was one of the very few courses I couldn't do it in Canberra, which of course was where we lived, and I felt like I wanted to strike out and go somewhere else. But having um, having tried to work and um, and study for a year, that was actually really really tough. And I came back and and did an arts degree at ANU, and I really loved it actually. And similar to you, Andrew was thinking, how can I, uh, you know, I'll be able to do a little bit of philosophy, and I'll be able, you know, I'll be able to mix and do some maths or something later. And of course, the big challenge was. 
I loved all of the first, the four subjects I did in first year and then you had to reduce them and, you know, it's kind of been the story of my life. How do you re reduce from, um, from so, so many different things? And then I, I did what lots of um, um, young people, you know, particularly in Australia, I guess, um, at the time. And it's interesting, I look at the cost of travel now. I think, you know, we often used to go overseas for a year and I think it was partly because it was so expensive to get to the other side of the world. I found actually my... Um, uh, the, the statement where I'd bought my ticket the other day, it was three and a half thousand dollars. And I can tell you that was a very, very long time ago. And you could get that ticket a lot cheaper today. Um, and I was really fortunate because I ended up... Um, I think you could go anywhere, Angela. <laughs> no, that's right. Co correct. Good correction, Anna-Marie. Um, and I was really lucky I landed at, at the Coca-Cola company as a, as a temp. Um, but, um, you know, because I was temping, I actually ended up getting um, a series of two-week, um, you know, kind of positions filling in, you know, effectively as an admin assistant um, there. And I got to see the, the corporate structure in many ways. And I was really, really lucky and ended up getting a contract there and, and having... Um, you know, one of the execs who kind of took me under her wing a little bit and talked talked to me about what, you know, a number of the different options might be. And then when I eventually came home um, to Australia and I ended up being gone for two years, I um, I worked part-time at the Uni University of Sydney and studied um, a Master of Commerce, actually. So I did Honours in History and then Master of Commerce majoring in Finance. And I, I think, um, you know, I would echo your, your comments, Andrew. I think, you know, even the design aspect I only did one year but when we're doing human-centered design and thinking about you know even within a financial product thinking about the path that a person takes to understand or purchase and all of those kinds of things a lot of those things that I did in that one year are actually really relevant and I think um, in a world that is changing so much having breadth um, and being able to look at things through different lenses is um, extremely powerful so I, I always like to say the one um, the one upside of, of not knowing what you want to do is perhaps that you can be open to a lot of different opportunities. And I certainly feel that that's been the case for me. Fantastic. What a great, um, what a great set of uh, self-introductions. Um, you know, I think Ellie set the challenge high, didn't she, when she's basically running from an arranged marriage. That seemed to be the main, major motivation for education. And then Angela very generously described that as having a focused career. So that's, that's high standards by my by my book. But I do notice actually, you know, despite that great diversity, very welcome diversity in those narratives, there is across all three to certain extents, at least I think I hear that kind of double version of the word career. You know, on the one hand, it seems to suggest a very well plotted sort of thought out, you know, um, considered an authoritative passageway to sort of seniority and, you know, great remuneration. And on the other hand, it's sort of you know, like a careering car, it can represent sort of skidding on a road or a sense of actually losing direction and control. And there's something, um, I guess, for someone like me who's spent nearly 30 years, you know, at the teaching end of a university, there's something very appealing about that hidden um, sort of double cracker of a word of a career. What does it mean, you know, one thing or the other? So maybe that's a nice um, segue for us to move to thinking specifically about you know, what workplaces want and workplaces need, which you've started talking about in different ways already, um, particularly Andrew started to mention the sorts of things, you know, he might be looking for. Can we sort of think a little bit about, in relation to your own current uh, workplaces or organisations, what 
what are we looking for in terms of a workforce? And just as a sort of an anchoring point, I'm just going to note that an audience member has put in a question. You don't have to answer this question particularly. It's just a sort of a framework for our thinking. Um, someone who's wanting to, uh, wondering about what are the key drivers for young graduates being attracted to an employer and remaining with an employer. You know, so when we're thinking sort of what do we want in our workforces, um, there's also that audience question is also interestingly put an angle on, you know, what do the potential employees see when they look at our organisations? So perhaps some conversation around that. I think the key skill we think about in the future as a business is agility and flexibility. And that is because we, we, we can't possibly predict what's going to happen in five years, especially in the technology domain. Uh, and, and these days in the financial services domain, but, but pro probably it's hard to predict for five months at this, this current, current phase. And so the kind of, kind of thing that we are talking about with our people is, is the, the best skill that they could bring to us is, is agility and flexibility. And that, that includes how, how prepared they are to change. Uh, that might be around, around the way that we organize ourselves or the way that all the tools that we use, uh, and, and the, we have to think about change as, as much more a continuum. When, when you apply that to career, people have people tend to have a fixed idea of career and it often gets associated with hierarchy and, and remuneration. Uh, we, we have taken steps to break the link between uh, how many people are in my team and how much I get paid. And so you can be a specialist... Or, or an expert that earns as much as someone that has a whole lot, a lot of people responsibility. Uh, often, often the ability to be an expert doesn't translate to the ability to manage people. And so there are, there are a few axes that, that, are, that are really important to start to break apart. Uh, the, the career pathway is much more, much more uh, adjacent and horizontal and exper experiential than, than simply upward. Uh, and I think that people are increasingly interested in those experiences. Um, the, the other aspect of attraction, attraction and retention is probably, well, getting that right is the best way to an efficient cost base uh, because nothing worse for an employer to have to, have to deal with churn within its, within its uh, cohort. It's expensive, it takes time, it means that you miss, miss goals off, often. And so keeping, keeping what we call our non-regretted churn low is really important. Uh, we have done things like extend probation periods so that we've got, we both have, us and the employee, more chance to work out whether it's right. Uh, but, but attraction and retention is really important. And that means we've got to appeal across what we do, what we pay, the benefits we offer, the environment that we deliver, uh, the flexibility we offer, the tools that we have, uh, and how we can help someone develop in their career, uh, you know, in, in all directions. So we, we have that very, very much front of mind. Um, Ring any bells, Angela or Ellie? Yes, it's interesting. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's one of the best things about retention is to be careful how you do attraction. Mm. So, you know, I kind of think if you, if you do a sell that you can't 
live through, then that's almost a recipe, you know, kind of for disaster. So I, I always say one of the, you know, the, the best things to do is to really try to be quite authentic about, um, you know, what you have. You know, the, the truth is different cultures, um, just like different roles, appeal to different people. And that I don't think will be universal. So I think spending a bit of time kind of knowing who you are, both as a person and as an organisation, is quite important. And then being really authentic about how you present that. And that way I think you are more likely to attract um you know, kind of attract something where the where, where the where the deal is going to be, um, you know, kind of um, live up to, I guess, what was sold at, at the outset. Um, but you know, certainly, you know, from the work that that we've done, developing is, you know, it is one of the things that you know, particularly the younger generation are, are really keen to be able to do. And I agree with you, Andrew. It's thinking through how you can bust that up. I mean, when people come to talk to me around, you know, kind of the journey, you know, I really, I feel as though being a good executive is just about trying to be a better person. If you be a better person, most of the time you will also, you know, be a better person, you know, at work. Um, And so it's being a little bit curious about what you know and curious about what you don't know and curious about why someone else is taking a different view from you and curious around why you might be feeling or reacting as you are, you know, kind of inside and constantly, you know, trying to to move that forward, um, but yeah, I think authenticity is a is a big part of um, you know of, of, of kind of um, retaining people. You know, being 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 authentic about the environment they're likely to walk into. And just to build on that, um, attracting and keeping our young talent is something at EY we put a lot of effort into an incredible amount of effort. Um, and one of the things, we always have a bit of a laugh with, um, with my team, I have to explain that the last thing the client wants to hear from is an old partner. They actually want to, particularly if they're talking about um, innovation. So with our young people, I find we absolutely have to have them front and centre. Um, and that means they may not have the skills, but it means you've actually got to help them with the confidence and skills to get there. Um, you know, I had a, a fantastic example where I had one of my colleagues, um, they were going to see someone very senior and a client to talk about intelligent automation. And he said, Ali, can you come with me, please? I said, look, I can't because I've got another appointment. So um, I'm going to send Nathaniel with you. Um, this partner, can, and this partner, by the way, was older than I am, right? So that's quite old. Um, came back and said, um, Ali, I can't take Nathaniel because he's 12. And I said, he's not 12, he's 23. And he's a graduate and he's amazing. He's absolutely incredible. And trust me, the client wants to hear from him, not from you, not from me. And, you know, my, my colleagues said, you know, this, this is a CEO and a CFO and a COO. It has to be senior people. I said, mate, suck it up. It's Nathaniel or nobody. Um, so he went off to this uh, client call. Um, you know, we were talking about intelligent automation and what it was going to be doing for the organisation. I had the most delightful conversation afterwards. My colleague called me and said, Ali, Nathaniel was amazing. I said, of course he was. I told you he was. Because he'd been doing the doing, right? And literally he did look like he was 12. Um, But he was amazing. And this young chap, um, you know, I I couldn't hold on to him because he was just so good. And he came to me one day and said, Ali, I've got an opportunity to go and work in New York with an EY. They've actually asked me if I want to do it. And will you sponsor me? I said, yes, of course I will. The deal is with Daniel, though, that you have to come back. And, of course, I've never seen him again. Um, 
But, you know, that's what we want for our young people. And I think if you don't, and when I'm saying young people, I'm talking people right up to my age, right? If you don't give them lots of opportunity to be innovative but also support them in being successful, they will leave. So that's where we put our energy, making sure. So, you know, I'm old, I've got a title, and I actually rose through the ranks at the same rate as my clients. Therefore, I have the right to open the door. But once we get there, they really want to hear from the young, innovative people. So at EY, we put them front and centre. I think there is a contrast between the desire and expectation of of people to work, work, work in innovation uh, from from an employer's perspective, is also also the reality of needing to get stuff done, and that may not be as exciting as some of that other stuff. And and this is, I think, a real push pull for young people in inside a inside a business. And those that those that I see excel are the ones that are not sitting there saying, "Can you give me all the innovation stuff?" and and then I'll then I'll do well. They're the ones that are getting the job done and going above and beyond or out of their way to experience those things. And they're the ones that stand out. Um, and so my, my counsel will be not, not to sit and wait for it, but to go and find it. And but you also have to be with an organisation that's going to support you. That. Yeah, you have to allow right? that. Yeah. You've got to, because there are lots of, there's still lots and lots of hierarchy out there where people think that because they have an important title, it's their opportunity to speak. Yeah. I think the I think the other other thing just on innovation specifically the the idea you see different approaches to innovation and some some businesses will will establish an innovation lab uh, and and the sense that innovation only happens in the lab uh, is is just crazy uh, the in innovation in in the role in the work in the business actually needs to be the the job of everyone. Uh, now, I, I agree that that is, that is deeply cultural at the employer level, but everyone needs to have a sense that they will improve the way that they work, improve the process that, that might be cast upon them and improve the business. And, and that, that is, you know, when you, when you find a business that, is, that has a culture like that is, is truly contagious. Uh, and so trying to get, I noticed one of the, one of the comments here is, is about how do you, how do you best test culture? Well, there, there, there are lots of ways. I think people, people are increasingly doing their diligence on what culture is like inside an employer before they accept a role. Uh, and we, we are finding with, with candidates that they're, they're as much interested about what it's like on the inside as opposed to us trying to sell them, sell them the dream. I think you're making a really nice point there, Andrew, that picks up, I think, on the comments made in that little section around um, the organisational culture, uh, not just as a sort of a dead phrase to mean sort of a hierarchy and a sort of a CEO and, a, you know, an organisational tree, but actually to mean something more like, you know, picking up on, on Angela's notions of authenticity and curiosity. What does it feel like to work in this organisation or in this kind of culture? And then Ellie and Andrew, you have both in your different accounts, I think given descriptions of new forms of organisational modelling that are not perhaps, you know, Andrew's emphasising the horizontality, um, the flexibility and the agility. And I think, Ali, you're kind of also um, demonstrating that, yes, you might be a junior um, worker in an organisation and you might have a massive contribution to be able to make it at a certain point. And I think one of the key things that's coming out from that is, 
future worlds of work may not be so hierarchical, may not be so remuneration, might not be sort of uh, readable off, a, off an organisational chart, um, and people might be doing different things at different times. Um, what about uh, our current remote worlds of work? Are there anything in your collective thinkings about future workforces and future work practices that have turned out or felt particularly pointed to you um, at this time where we're having to work and collaborate with remote workforces, you know, maybe particularly in professions which have had high face-to-face -face, um, engagement previously? I'm happy to kick off. Um, you know, I think it, it's been really fascinating. Um, you know, all of us, I think, it's an exercise in learning. So, obviously, the, the first no-brainer is, you know, many, many organisations of many, many people have, within a very short space of time, effectively continued their operations with everybody working from home. So, certainly, Challenger, we have about 700 employees and you know we went to a full work from home scenario in about mid-march or somewhere around then and we've currently got probably about 10 percent of our people back in the office and that were the 10 percent who were desperate um, to get back so um, you know it puts an end to all of those questions about whether or not people can work flexibly and can work from home and you know those debates are just qed they're done um, but, you know, I think it's, it teaches you other things about yourself. So I've really noticed some of our team who are more extroverted and really get their energy from taking ideas and um, from other people. And it's something that you can do in a really, um, um, you know, organic way when you're in an office and everyone's together. And it's much, much harder to do that when, um, you know, you have to book a call and you have to call someone and everyone's flat on a screen. You can't have little you know, kind of informal side conversations as you come in and out of a meeting. There's a whole host of things. I have found that people I interact with, it's day-to-day, -day, you still have good levels of interaction with, but there's now a whole host of my team that I just don't see at all because they're not people that I have one-on-ones with or I'm in project meetings with, and it's connecting with them just informally that has felt really different. So I found it interesting to watch... Um, who has found it really hard and who's finding it harder to maintain their energy levels. And it's, you know, it's teaching you a little bit about yourself and maybe notice, making you notice something about your modus operandi that, you know, it's, it's like anything. You notice it in contrast. You notice um, when it is not there. But, you know, I think it's enormously exciting and there's so much, you know, in the world of work with ageing demographics, mature age workers, you know, this concept even that a career is something that goes up. I think that's going to be... Um, you know, have to be challenged too because we're finding people who want or need to work longer but don't necessarily want to work at the same pace or in the same hours, which, which works, but maybe, maybe that doesn't mean your career only goes up. It maybe means that you step back and play, play a different type of role within an organisation. So, um, you know, I think it's been really exciting to see um, just how quickly um, people have been able to adapt to this more flexible working. And, you know, I think it's pretty that, you know, there aren't many things that you read anymore that says we will go back to what it was. <laughs> Obviously, we'll go back to more people um, perhaps being in the office, but we're all going to have to get um, far more adept at, at having, you know, some people or more people in different places as we do that and working through how, how you can really get that collaboration. Because I do notice that things where you do the big whiteboard and everyone's in throwing ideas around, that is much harder to do. Um, much harder to do virtually, but but not impossible. Alison or Andrew, any anything to add to that? Well, technologists, we just think it's awesome, right? 
So um, it's, it's highly competitive for us, right, to see how many tools you can use at once. I think in the first week, you know, there was a real competition on our team to see who could use virtual whiteboarding the best. Um, and, you know, how many calls have you been on where there's hilarious gifts being put in the, uh, in the chat? Um, but actually, we've found that, you know, we were already remote or, or um, diversifying because we're either at a client site uh, at home and we are very rarely in the office. Uh, so that wasn't really a big deal for us. Um, what I did think was much better, we are a global firm. We have amazing knowledge transfer. And I thought it was pretty good. Um, but once we all globally went to remote working, we are actually working so much better with our global colleagues. You know, I had a situation recently where I had to do something on intelligent parking and I'd sort of run out of content uh, just after I'd said my name. You know, I really didn't know a lot about intelligent parking. Um, but my colleague in Sweden had just done some incredible work. Time differences are great. So we actually all just got on the call with the client and we omitted to tell the client that Magnus was actually from Sweden. Um, and it wasn't until partway through the call, he said, are you not in Australia? And he said, oh, no, I'm from, I'm from Sweden. You know, this is where this work has all been done. Um, so it was, it was almost, a, and we didn't do it deliberately, but it was invisible to the client. Um, so I actually think we are getting much better global collaboration than what we were previously. It is a human habit to always talk to the person who's next to you or always work with the teams you always feel comfortable with. So we're getting much better diversity. And as a result, I think our clients are getting a much better outcome. Andrew. I completely agree. Um, I, I think that there's there's been a huge emphasis on productivity over over this over this period, and I think think to an extent it's been at the expense of deep thought, and so everyone has been very focused on the, on the task and elated by that. I think I think the what what is interesting interesting to me is where where does where does IP get created and how do people collaborate, and so we are. We're, we are still emphasising that teams are better when they can get together, but that's not always practical. And so we need to then use this technology to the, to the best, best advantage. Uh, we, we will enter this next, next future phase by encouraging people to think about where, what, you know, what do they need to do, therefore where they, do they need to be instead of come to the office and work out what you need to do. Uh, and... I think that that creates all sorts of opportunities. It creates opportunities for employers to think about where they employ skills because that may not be here, um, which is which is probably a new challenge for te technology sector in Australia. Um, but that that presents different problems for how do you lead people. Uh, presents problems if you're new to work. How do you create impressions of people and how do you conduct yourself? How do you learn how to conduct yourself with clients or, or others? So I think there are different, different things that will emerge, but people will adapt and work out how to, how to do that. I think that particularly for graduates, you know, the, the best example I've seen is, is not that graduates start a job and stay at home for, for the rest of their career, but there will be an intensive period of, of, of maybe 12 months, 18 months where, where graduates are expected to come into an office so they can learn the culture or learn, learn how we do things. And I think that's really important so that what gets presented to a client or a consumer is done on a consistent basis. And that, that, that is important for brand. So, so all of these things will, will get, get adjusted 
adjusted over the next little while. All really great examples, I think, and all great examples of the genuine sort of technical meaning of the word disruption, not just a sort of a, an upset in the ordinary way of things, but actually a kind of a, a um, interrupting constraint that forces us sometimes quite reluctantly um, to really assess and often alter um, business as usual practice, which is sort of what makes it an exciting opportunity. You know, how we sort of respond to something that seems almost literally impossible. And then we find, well, in some aspects, this is even better than what we used to do, but we would never have explored it without the, the radical disruptive force in this instance of a, of a global pandemic. I wonder whether um, we should move to uh, taking some audience Q&A. So a couple that I want to go through because they have a sort of a theme that connects them. If I sort of summarise, they're basically from slightly different perspectives asking the panel for kind of your advice around what to do in relation to uh, kind of mid-career uh, reimagining of yourself. So uh, one audience member has said, what postgraduate qualification uh, might have most value for a mature mid-career worker, um, given the changing labour market, you know, COVID, but also um, labour market pressures? And then another audience member says, I'm on a career-changing pathway. What's the most effective way to introduce myself um, to an employer when the qualifications that I have don't match criteria requirements? So, you know, they're in that sort of tricky, uh, okay, I've got the appetite and energy for doing this, but I'm not quite sure. What, what would you reflect on in relation to those specific questions, but in a general framework of sort of mid-career change? So we do this a lot. Um, we don't just take people from traditional backgrounds. Um, and you'd be aware that whenever you're applying for a job, everyone uses a robot now. So they'll go through and look for certain words. I hate that because it doesn't actually tell you who the person is. So three things we look for, collaboration, communication, and digital. And what we're actually looking for is experience of where you've done that. And it doesn't need to be in the industry and it doesn't need to be specific. But if you're talking in theory about what you do, not interested. Um, if you're able to talk about an experience where you demonstrated those skills, absolutely. So if I look at my smartest um, manager, which is a, a, a mid-range uh, career move uh, when you're coming into consulting, um, she is actually a, a concert pianist. So, um, you know, didn't have a lot of technology skills, uh, but she also is quite, quite um, she's amazing at finance, hadn't worked in the arts. And when I actually talked to her about why she wanted to come into consulting and her problem-solving skills, the way that she communicated, her incredible consideration of things and understanding how to work in an industry that is always underfunded and actually has to find ways to do things was just exceptional. So she wouldn't have been a traditional hire, um, but when I met her, I thought, I so want this person in my team, and she is exceptional. Uh, we call her the unicorn, um, but she was able to demonstrate in her conversation where she'd used collaboration, communication, and digital skills. Great, Ellie, and it seems, Andrew, you could have stayed and been a concert pianist and still have your <laughs> technologist life. I reckon that would have been a different pathway. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I completely agree with with what 
Alison has described, we, we have people that have come from PhDs in reconstructing skulls that are now working in software engineering. I think the, the diversity and diversity doesn't limit the applicability. Um, I was speaking with a pilot this morning that was considering exactly this, this challenge and how to stand out to, to employers. Um, I think that goes back to the to the basis of what how we started this in terms of having an open mind to what to expect. That I think that too often we think that careers are a linear pathway, and they're, they're absolutely not. They're quite random in, in in each step. And I think that the first starts with the individual being being prepared and open minded to think about how they can apply their skills. Uh, I think that the the, the other aspects of how do you stand out and be, be attractive to employers is is harder in this digital environment. And so uh, I find find that making sure that you're networked and talking to as many people as you can is essential. Um, but but it, it may even come come back to writing long form long form introductions or um, actually doing something that's different to what the crowd is doing that are all 144 characters um, but doing something to stand out and to demonstrate that you can write, actually write, write a letter or write something about yourself that will make you stand out. I think they're the kinds of things that you should be employing to um, talk about the skills that you can apply and and mid, mid-career change I think is something that we should all expect and uh, ad- adapting to that is I think I think it's challenging, but but not impossible. The only thing I would um, add, I mean, I agree with everything um, Ali and Andrew has said. One of the things I always try to do whenever I'm um, thinking about any move, actually, or work or anywhere, is put myself in in the other person's shoes. So, if I was hiring, what would I be worried about? I'd be worried about I'm going to invest in helping this person make a transition and they won't stay. You know, and all that means is it's kind of like how do you demonstrate that this is? Have you thought enough about whether this is the right move for you and that it's what you want to do? Because you know, your, your buyer, in this case, you know, someone who helps you make that transition, um, you, you know, wants to feel that that's, that's, that's going to be a win-win. Um, and then, you know, what are the, you know, perhaps way that you can show as well that that transition um, uh, burden, I guess, will be shared. So, you know, what's, what's the network, what's the prep, what's the, um, where are the places you're going to go to help that, you know, kind of transition occur? And, I, you know, it's not something we've spoken about um, a lot, interestingly, but I 100% agree, you know, with network. It's been really curious about, um, you know, other people who've made that kind of transition, understanding what are the skills you've got that are translatable, you know, talking to as many people as you can, I suppose, to help, um, you know, build a realistic picture and, um, you know, almost, um, almost put together your own transition plan so that, um, you know, wherever you're going, it's looking like a pretty compelling story. That's great. And I think we started off with um, Ellie sort of reflecting on, you know, kind of employment bots sort of crawling over applications and CVs to take out kind of key words. And, and certainly I know, you know, people who are going into the labour market are equally assiduously changing their LinkedIn profiles and their CVs in order to meet you know, the terms. That, and you can see how that would deliver us into a kind of a, a nightmarish um, kind of world. But some of the audience questions are now starting to focus on um, what, what are these sort of skills, you know, ba- a basic skill set in 2020, what do we sort of need to know? Um, and in particular, someone asking, I think in relation, Ellie, to your suggestion about collaboration, communication and digital skills, wanting to know 
what can we be a bit more specific? What are digital skills sort of now and future oriented? Oh, so look, when, when we define digital, it, it means that we can communicate in, in multiple levels. It doesn't always need to be face-to-face. And I think it's what Andrew was saying. Digital, it, it comes back to communication. So I get a bit cross if um, my team sends me texts that um, are not written in full. Um, so yes, of course, you can use um, digital, um, but you can't use the digital tools. You can't use Teams properly. You can't use Zoom properly. You can't collaborate properly. Uh, that just makes me cross. Um, our clients expect that because we're consultants and they perceive we cost a lot of money, uh, that we, we were available at all times and we can answer any question about absolutely anything. That means you need to be able to do really good analysis of data that's out there. Um, and that doesn't mean pulling something off a website and sending it to a client. So it is about the analysis skills. It's about using the appropriate tools. And sometimes it's actually about how you communicate alternatively. So you might use video. You know, we have some of the most shocking videos you've ever seen at EY. Um, And we've also got some amazing ones as well. But it's about using all of the available communication and collaboration tools digitally to make sure you connect with the person appropriately. And I saw there's a question here on networking as well. That is exactly where digital comes in. Anyone who sends me a a LinkedIn request that I've not physically met them, um, I automatically reject. Um, Or in the digital world, if we're doing something like this and someone wants to connect and sends a note that said, hey, I was just on the, the webinar or whatever you were on, I'd like to connect, absolutely I'll connect. Um, but remember what your mother told you uh, when you need a relationship, it's too late to form one. So, you know, that is always my rule in networking, be it physical um, or also digital. Other thoughts, Angela and Andrew, around a sort of a basic skill set requirement in 2020 and beyond? So, look, I think that, you know, communication is definitely a big one, I think, because, you know, people and collaboration, we're always working in teams. Therefore, I think almost for for both of those in some ways, um, well, I guess, you know, I'm almost steering away from the technical, which which maybe I shouldn't. You know, there's there's no doubt that... um, as we, we move forward, and one of the things that I, I love about the younger people coming in is things that are native to them that, that aren't necessarily native to me. And I, I see it with my children, frankly, who um, roll their eyes at my incompetence at times. Um, so those those are, um, you, you know, they're definitely specific skills. I almost take a lot of that as given sometimes. And looking for, I think, self-awareness is, um, is really you know, quite a quite a big one, um, and that's both knowing your own strengths and, um, but knowing your, your limitations, knowing when to put your hand up for for something as well. But definitely collaboration. Um, everything we do, you know, kind of in work now is around, um, you know, doing things with others. So being able to, you know, elicit other people's opinions, being able to hear and see someone else's approach and. Um, and, and look for what's good in that and look for what almost you can, you can learn in that. Communication and, you know, written communication in particular, um, you know, I, I think with a, a, a far less, there is still a lot, at least in the corporate world, that, that becomes formal where things do need to go for a formal approval and it's one of the things that I think um, knowing when to switch style because I think when you're doing a lot of more collaborative and digital communication, you can kind of miss 
what does a more structured piece of communication for a board or a leadership team need to look like? And I think that that can be something that's, um, that's you know, kind of important. And, look, I think that adaptability, and I think that to me comes um, a little bit back to um, kind of curiosity. And what I mean by that is, you know, what about this situation or circumstance is similar to what I've seen before and I can apply something? And what about it is different so that I might need to be thinking differently um, about it? And resilience. You know, this is really hard. I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure the best way of, of building that. Sometimes I think it's, it's to remember, you know, a lot of the time it's not about you. I think sometimes um, if you can take that perspective of, you know, where is someone else in this situation as opposed to, you know, perhaps taking something personally. But even what we've seen as we've gone through, um, you know, COVID-19 and, and what that means, but that sense, I think, of, of resilience and maybe a little piece too of self-starting. Andrew referred to this earlier around, um, you know, people wanting to work in innovation and, you know, wanting to do all of the interesting work. And I think, you know, immediately, I think if you put yourself in your boss's shoes, and you think, you know, am I becoming a problem for that person through almost my demands or am I becoming um, someone who's great to have on the team because, um, because of what I bring? And I think so often, um, again, if I reflect back and, and even if I see what others do who do it well, I remember when I was in consulting, uh, this was, I, I did human resource consulting for a period of time and one of the pieces of work that... Um, you know, was actually valuable for clients but was seen as highly transactional and no one wanted to do it, was writing job descriptions. And organisations would come and often they would want, you know, the whole division or something done at once. So you, often the job would be not one job description but 20 or 25 job descriptions. And, you know, none of the young consultants wanted to do this because it was transactional and this and that and something else. And, you know, speaking to networking or whatever, you know, I would, I would always do this and I found I was in it mostly a you're interviewing people who are well senior to yourself so you're meeting someone and then the next time you go to a forum you can actually approach that person as having had a one-on-one -on -one conversation with them people will tell you all kinds of things about their business and what they and how they operate for some reason when you ask them questions um, and you know you were really able to see how different industries were structured so yes the process of writing the job description was actually pretty uninteresting but but there was so much else you could take. And I think if you can take that mindset, you know, I mean, the, the truth is the world of work is not always exciting and stimulating and you're not always on the leading edge and, you know, doing the piece of innovation. But if you can find within the work you're doing, what am I learning here? What can I take forward from this? What out of this? You know, you know I think it's, um, it's amazing how beneficial um, even quite mundane exercises um, can actually be. No, no one wants someone working for them that bring problems. So you, you have to think about how you're going to solve problems. Um, and I think that, that that's a good, good thing to remember. But going, going to basic skills, I think having a conversation or being able to sustain a conversation is probably the, the fundamental skill. Uh, and if you can't do that, no one is going to expect that you'll be able to do that with a client. Um, being able to write, a, write, write, it's really easy to write 144 characters. It's really easy to write 4,000 words. Uh, it is hard to write 
a business case that fits less than four pages. So that is all about being to the point, being concise, being strategic. Uh, that that is an essential skill, and then being able to present that uh, and present that without without a slide deck. So all of those things come together to to really really summarize basic communication skills, and they're, they're essential. If I'm if I'm close to close to a recruiting a role uh, or it's in my proximity I'll expect the candidate to submit a written document uh, probably no more than two pages I'll expect them to present it and that will be assessed uh, with a group of my peers so we we want to know whether someone can not only convey what they're on about and know about it instead of just regurgitating something but we're also using that as a forum to work out whether we can get along with this person and so if they've got past that, then in, in days unlike the current, current days, we'd probably have a dinner if it was a senior role. And if we can't stand that dinner that goes for two or three hours and the conversation becomes utterly dull, that person might get a job. So there are the whole, whole range of different dimensions that, that go to can you, can you carry yourself as a human and as a contributor to the team. One, one comment on digital skills that you can, you can profess all the skills that you've got, but if you don't, and, and this doesn't mean that you need to be on social media, but if you've got nothing in LinkedIn, this will depend on the job that you're going for as well, but if you've got nothing on LinkedIn that says about where you've been, don't try and profess that you've got digital skills. Good, practically oriented um, advice there, Andrew and team, which is very much valued. Listen, we're very close to our um, end time. So I'm just going to go around the group in a sort of a, a short fire format and ask you to reflect briefly on what do you wish you knew when you were perhaps leaving school and venturing closer to employment? What do you wish you could have told yourself? that you perhaps know now. Perhaps we'll go um, Alison, Andrew, Angela. Um, my, my, the times my career has been at its best is during recessions. So I'm old enough to remember 88, 89, uh, and then 2008. Um, so you know, it's a lot of the panic that led up to that, um, and even I've been saying there's going to be a recession for the last five years and then, of course, COVID has brought it on for us. Um, so I wish, I wish I was able to go back and tell myself that we don't need to be in good times for you to have a good career. So I actually think in times, and I think Andrew touched on it, um, one of the things I'm so bored with seeing the sad stories on the news every night about COVID, but I love watching the amazing stories about how people have innovated. Yeah. Uh, you know, they say things like, well, it was either this or we, you know, went down the tube. It does bring out something amazing in people. And I, I think it was the one last night about a, a restaurant and I looked at that and thought, actually, I'm going to order from them. That looks really cool. So, yeah, advice to myself, if I, if I could go back um, all those years ago and just say, calm your farm, it's going to be okay and remarkably when times are bad, that's actually where you'll be at your best. Uh, yeah. So when when I was at university, I was I was very keen to work uh, and 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 pro probably anxious to work. Uh, I think that if if I if I went 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 back to those times, I'd tell myself not to um, be be that anxious and and to 
just be ready to adapt and back yourself um, and back yourself around being, being flexible and changeable and use, use, the, use the skills you've got to thrive. Um, I'm actually going to share um, a question that someone asked me really early in my career that I'm enormously thankful for. So it's one that I try to give to others because I feel like it made a big difference to me. And it was not long after I joined consulting and I had been paired up with one of the partners, but she had only really recently been made a partner and we got in the taxi to go out to the client and she said to me, you know, Angela, I wish um, someone had told me, you know, back when, when I was a consultant that, um, you know, once you move beyond consulting and into partner, you know, being a partner, you're really doing business development. She said, because actually I've sat through all of these meetings like you're about to sit through now and I was so busy focused on the work that I was going to deliver that I didn't really pay that much attention to what the partners were doing. And it was such timely advice because it was really early in my career and it meant every time I went to a client meeting, I was sitting... Um, Yes, thinking about what is this going to mean for the piece of analysis or work that I'm going to need to produce when we get back to the office. But I was also watching what's the partner doing, what questions are they asking, you know, how are they going about the process of business development, client management, relationship management, all of those kinds of things. But it was also early enough in my career that I've taken it everywhere. So when I'm sitting at a leadership team table and I'm one of the members, I'm looking at how does this leader lead and what are they doing and what are, you know, kind of constantly, I guess, watching almost everybody else to think what are the things that I don't need to know now but that I might need to know in the future. And I think it was, it was really such good advice. It almost gets back to that constant you know, kind of really there is an opportunity to learn always and you can, you can look and see what are the things that um, you can kind of do better? And I think there are always senior people who do certain things worse than you. So I almost think there's no point going there. You know, that's just going to make you feel, you know, kind of self-congratulatory. What is, what is it that this person does that you perhaps don't do so well? Or, you know, what is it that's got them to where they are? And I find that really powerful and also really rewarding because you then find the things about other people that you like, um, which, you know, strengthens a relationship as well. It's fantastic. Thank you all very, very much. Um, it's been great to share the Sydney Ideas platform with you this afternoon and with our audience. Um, and I think a fairly, I think I am optimistic. I'm temperamentally optimistic, but I think that is a fairly sort of upbeat account of how people might position themselves um, in relation to an uncertain world of work without necessarily feeling that only trepidation would go with that moment. I think we've emphasised the agility, the, um, the opening ourselves up to new opportunities and the idea of reinvention um, of self through that process. So um, thank you, Alison, Angela and Andrew, um, for your participation. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more information, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney hyphen ideas. It's where you'll find the transcript for this podcast and our contact details if you'd like to get in touch with a question or feedback. If you haven't already, subscribe to our podcast so you'll never miss a new episode. Search for Sydney Ideas on Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud. Finally, we want to acknowledge that this podcast was made in Sydney, which sits on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built.